The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Let us listen now for God's word as it comes to us first from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with the 43rd verse. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. And from Matthew 18, beginning with the 15th verse. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If you won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest. And, and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. And if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. My friends, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the 90s, I taught for 10 years on the faculty of Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Austin, Texas. In my role as the preaching professor, I was often dispatched with little warning by the dean of the seminary to preach at Presbyterian churches that were within driving distance of Austin. Our dean functioned as sort of a bishop. 
And when a pastor suddenly came down with the flu or when a minister's daughter unexpectedly made it into the regional soccer final, clergy would reach out to Bob for a pinch hitter and Bob would often call me. One particularly memorable week, my phone rang late on a Saturday afternoon. Scott, this is Bob. Are you by any chance free to preach tomorrow? Yes, I responded. What's up? Well, he said, there's a church on the north side of San Antonio that over the last 24 hours has just plain imploded. Yesterday, the session voted to fire the pastor, and today, the presbytery voted to dissolve the session. It's a mess. Uh, I would go, but I have to lead a service in Oklahoma tomorrow. Would you mind stepping in and preaching? The next morning, I drove 90 miles south. On entering the limestone church, I found two men waiting for me in the just-terminated pastor's study. One had his arm in a sling. He explained that he'd been kicked by a cow earlier in the week. The other man had a dressing over one of his eyes. He explained that he was recovering from surgery. These two wounded gentlemen welcomed me in and presented me with their plan. During the prelude, all three of us would walk into the chancel of the church, and then, said the fellow with one good arm, when Dottie finishes playing the prelude, I will stand and explain the steps that our congregation is going to have to take to sort through this mess. When I'm done, I'll introduce you, Scott, and the rest of the service is yours. Uh, of course, Barney and I will sit behind you during worship to show, you know, moral support. I nodded and put on my robe. My moral support looked like they'd just finished fighting the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> Eventually, the three of us sat facing the congregation. The one-eyed fellow leaned over and said to me, Dottie's on her last song. We asked her to play Amazing Grace to set the tone. I smiled, the organ was booming. Dottie was clearly giving it her all. Then, as the final bars of this most famous of hymns rattled the windows, the back doors of the sanctuary swung open. It was a scene straight out of a Western movie. A tall man with tangled gray hair and a scowl on his face strode straight down the center aisle of the church, climbed the steps into the chancel, and as the final note of amazing grace hung in the air, he spun on his right heel and turned to stand in the pulpit. With a deep voice, he intoned, let us pray. Leaning over to the one-armed guy, I whispered, who the heck is that? That, he sighed, is the pastor. <laughs> it was a lengthy prayer. It included readings from the church records, a petition for the souls of the misguided congregation, and it ended by expressing the belief that God would do justice for him. <laughs> when the amen was finally pronounced, the pastor turned his fierce gaze on me. Well, it looks like we've got a young preacher from the seminary visiting today. Let's hear what he has to say. And with that, he sat down in the very first pew. 
standing up, looking at people who seem both bemused and confused by the drama unfolding before them, I groped for a word to fit the moment. I began by explaining that Christians are not immune to conflict. After all, in the earliest days of the church, the apostles Peter and Paul got into a major kerfuffle, as recorded in the book of Galatians. Like the rest of the world, the followers of Jesus can sometimes find themselves at odds with each other. What is different, I argued, is that people of faith approach conflict in a distinct way, in a way informed by their beliefs. Looking back, I fear I told those good people a lie. <laughs> I probably should have warned them of what was to come. In many ways, disputes within churches and within religious movements and denominations are some of the most contentious and nastiest brawls you can witness in contemporary culture. Have you seen the video memes making their way around the internet of Waffle House fights? The things I do in my spare time. Seriously, Waffle House fights are a thing. Late at night, people who have been, shall we say, overserved can get into some pretty wild brawls at Waffle House restaurants. And, and videos of these battles are going viral. Chairs and maple syrup fly through the air. But it's not, of course, just late night breakfast joints. Fifteen years ago, before I accepted the call to come to New York and to join this dear church in ministry, someone suggested that I read an online forum in which members of this community were engaged in an anonymous back-and-forth cage match, arguing over everything from pastoral leadership to music. It was rough reading but it was not unusual. Christian communities are notorious for their fights, fights that split communities, chairs and maple syrup in the air, fights so caustic that it leads some people to question their faith. Where did we learn to fight in such underhanded, hair-pulling, twist-the-dagger way? James Davidson Hunter has an answer. Hunter is professor of religion, culture, and social theory at the University of Virginia. He argues that Christians have learned to fight by watching politicians battle it out in local and national government. We model our approach to conflict, Hunter argues, based on what we see in political struggles for power. We take our cues from people whose goal is winning at no matter the cost. It makes sense. I cannot tell you how many times people have tried to excuse bad behavior in church with the preface, I'm sorry, pastor, but I care so passionately about this issue. Increasingly, we act as if passion, anger, 
a yearning for justice, frustration at systemic wrongs is the only thing that we need to engage in faithful conflict. And so we leave our virtues behind. We jettison behaviors that were taught, shaped, and modeled by our Lord. Now before talking about these behaviors, we will get there, these, these aspects and attitudes taught to us by Jesus, I want to say a quick word about why we so quickly abandon them. The answer, I think, is simple. We do not trust virtuous behavior. We think that it's weak. And our passion convinces us then to look for stronger tools, more effective tools to attain lofty goals. I've come to believe that that instinct represents both the road to hell and ironically, the road to failure. When we act like it doesn't matter how we pursue conflict, when we act like feelings of self-righteousness excuse bad behavior, we are feeding into a dynamic that perpetuates interminable cultural warfare. So many battles, so little progress. The irony of our current moment is that for all the cultural fights we've had in recent years, we've done precious little to move the needle in addressing the biggest issues that face our society. Consider this example. Americans have fought over immigration policy for decades. During that time, we've had moments when Republicans have controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency, and we've had moments when Democrats have controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency, and yes, we've had many years of divided government. It doesn't seem to matter who's in charge. We argue passionately, we accuse each other of heartlessness and foolishness, and now we've begun using human beings as illustrative pawns in this fight, busing refugees to northern cities, dropping them off in Times Square in the heart of winter, wearing only flip-flops on their feet. Is any of this helping? Our laws concerning immigration continue to be an incoherent mess, both in terms of enforcement and strategy. Clearly, passionate debate alone is not moving the needle. If we care so much, why aren't we focused on approaches to conflict that actually do bring about change? As Thomas Friedman recently wrote, are you interested in making a point or are you interested in making a difference? Martin Luther King, I think, would agree with that sentiment in a sermon based on today's text from Matthew 5, a, a passage in which Jesus challenges his followers to love their enemies. Dr. King doesn't wag a finger at people's failure to care for their adversaries. He makes an appeal to effectiveness. Listen to his words. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. 
adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Are you interested in making a point? Or are you interested in making a difference? All of this is preamble, but it is, I believe, important preamble. Too often we act like virtue is something that we need to chuck out the window if we want to be effective. But on the contrary, a virtuous approach to conflict may actually be the most effective path to identifying the good and to enacting lasting change. With that in mind, how shall we fight? To engage in faithful conflict, Christ encourages his followers to embrace five distinct behaviors. Honesty, humility, toughness, kindness, and hope. First, be honest. Do your homework. Do research, know your facts, and if you're in a conversation with an individual or a group about an important and conflicted matter, work to establish common facts. Can we all agree that, that, that this is true? Can we all agree that this is true? Build a foundation for addressing conflict atop bricks of truth. For as Jesus says, truth will set you free. Second, be humble. Be open to other people's perspectives. Be charitable in interpreting other people's intentions. Acknowledge the truth in other people's arguments. And be cautious in assigning blame. It is human nature to blame others for all that is wrong in the world. <laughs> it's the boomers who've ruined everything. They messed up race relations, the economy, the environment. It's the boomers. Our Martin Luther King preacher this year, Dr. Carrie Day, told me that she reminds her students at seminary to be humble in their quest for justice. She tells them, remember, Someday, the world will judge you. And Dr. Day is right, it will. We're not even aware right now of all the things that we're currently doing that future generations will look back at and shake their heads. What were they thinking? The generations behind us will judge us and God will judge us all. Remember. We are flawed, and as flawed people, we have to be humble in our pursuit of the good. We must be humble as Christ was humble. Third, be tough. Do not be fragile when criticized. Do not pack up your things and walk away from the table, take your toys and go home. If your feelings have been hurt, take a step back be circumspect. Ask yourself, is there a truth here that I need to consider? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And then reconnect with your passion. 
isn't staying in the conversation, working for righteous ends, more important than the dings that my ego is taking? I think of that one-eyed guy and one-armed guy standing in the breach to help that congregation in San Antonio sort through their mess. I recall Christ telling his disciples that they too would need to carry a cross. Be tough. And at the same time, build each other up. Encourage each other. Working on behalf of the good is just exhausting. And knowing this, the New Testament frequently counsels Christians to get busy supporting each other. Build each other up, says the Apostle Paul, at multiple places in his letters. Help each other be tough, be strong. Fourth, be kind. Have empathy for others. Look for the good in the other. My friend and Sarah's father, Reverend Tom R., recently remarked that the easiest thing in the world is to spot and point out your opponent's flaws. Tom is so right. What if we were to challenge ourselves to look for the good in the other, even in the enemy? A simple maneuver like that could change the dynamics in our most conflicted conversations. It could help us actually move the needle. How? Well, most human conflict focuses on and revolves around stories of pain and suffering. I'm going to say that again. Most human conflict focuses on and revolves around stories of pain and suffering. Rather than set these stories up as dueling narratives, rather than play endless rounds of who's more oppressed, we could risk empathizing with each other. I'm convinced that extending empathy to other people does not short-circuit the path to justice. It advances it. It builds trust. It lays bricks in a foundation on top of which complex problem-solving can occur. Finally, be hopeful. Tell the truth, be kind, work for meaningful change, but do not act as if everything depends on you. I was away this past week lecturing in North Carolina, and I, I met a fellow in my travels whose passionate concern for the environment was causing him obvious pain. He felt compelled to, to share his anxiety over the fate of the world with everyone around him. And, and in these conversations, anything less than full agreement with his position or radical conversion to his position felt to him like a failure. My heart went out to this guy. He was fired up, but he was not in any visible way hopeful. People who are hopeful know that the fate of the world does not depend entirely on their individual victories. They work faithfully for change, but they see 
the work of righteousness on a grand scale. They're willing to engage in striving for justice, but they're willing to play the long game to give people space to change their minds, to allow opinions to evolve and grow. You know, demand immediate. As American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once wrote, nothing that's worth doing, nothing that's worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. So my friends, there you have it. Honesty, humility, toughness, kindness, hope. Want to fight like Jesus? Keep those five virtues in mind. Oh, and one more thing. If this list seems a bit complicated when the maple syrup and chairs start flying through the air, remember this. All of these attitudes are rooted in something that we talked about about back in sermon number one. The most important thing that we can do as people of faith in this conflicted time is to keep our hearts focused on God. If we desire God, if we long to be what God would have us be, then we will pursue righteous and just solutions to the problems of the world. If we desire God, if we long to be who God would have us be, this will inevitably get us into conflict with the powers of the world, but it will also lead us to love the world, or at least to remember that God so loves the world. God loves this world beyond all reckoning, loves it enough to give us heaven's most precious lantern as our guide, the incarnation of truth, toughness, kindness, humility, and hope, who comes to teach us both how to live and how to fight. Go forth from this place, my friends, to fight the good fight. And as you go, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.